if you were a baseball fan and let's say like the the late 90s early 2000s the turn of the millennia more specifically if you were a Braves fan during this particular time period there were two pitchers in particular that kind of stuck out as a thorn in the Braves side and they were just dominant across the league two buddies really Andy Pettit and Roger Clemens over the span of about nine years, beginning with the 1999 season and continuing all the way through the 2000 season, these two pitchers playing for the same team would dominate the league. Clemens, Pettit, they would anchor the top end of the Yankees rotation from 1999 to 2003. They would win during that time period two world championships. In 1999, they swept the Braves in four games. Terrible. The next year, they repeated in 2000. Interesting, after that particular season, both Pettit and Clemens would leave the Yankees and go to the Houston Astros for three years. Also, difficult for Braves fans. From 2004 to 2006, Clemens and Pettit would not only make the playoffs twice, But in 2005, they took the Astros to their first ever World Series. They'd ultimately lose to the White Sox. I think it's it's baseball karma. But not before beating a far superior Atlanta Braves team in the National League Divisional Series in an epic 18-inning, six-hour game four that still stands as one of the longest postseason games in history. Roger Clemens, slated to pitch game five, came in in the 18th inning, was the last pitcher the Astros had to utilize, and the Braves lost. Terrible. Now, following a disappointing 2006 season with the Astros, and on account that they were both free agents at the time, Clemens and Pennant, who had gone from the Yankees to the Astros, decide to go back to the Yankees. They leave Texas, and they return to the evil empire in the 2007 season. They're, they were hoping a couple more years of continued dominance. And yet, things didn't exactly work out as they had planned. While the Yankees would make the playoffs that season, they would suffer an embarrassing three-games-to-one defeat to the Cleveland Indians. What people don't realize is that in suffering that particular defeat, this dynamic duo who dominated the game for so many years would never pitch again. Together, that is. Though Clemens and Pennant had grown to be best friends and undoubtedly had incredible careers that followed an almost identical trajectory, beginning that offseason, their lives would completely diverge along different paths for one specific reason. On December 13, 2007, the commissioner of Major League Baseball released what is today known as the Mitchell Report, which documented the findings of an independent 21-month investigation into the use of anabolic steroids and human growth hormone in the national pastime. In this 409-page report, George Mitchell cited explosive testimony a former New York Yankee strength and conditioning coach, Brian McNamee, who named both Clemens and Pettit as repeat steroid users. McNamee, in addition to being the strength and conditioning coach for the Yankees, had also been the personal off-season trainer for Clemens and Pettit. Though Clemens 
vehemently denied these allegations. He continues to do so today. Even filing a defamation lawsuit in 2009 against Brian McNamee. On a side note, he wouldn't win his suit, and as a result of a countersuit, would settle for an undisclosed amount of money just last year, so many years after the fact. But Clemens' reputation was tarnished. He was brandished a liar and would never play the game he loved ever again. In contrast to Clemens' approach, on December 16th, 2007, just three days after being named in the Mitchell Report, Andy Pettit did something pretty radical, something that no other uh, baseball player who had been accused of PEDs had ever done. He called a press conference where he admitted to using HGH in 2002 in order to recover from an elbow injury that had almost ended his career. In addition to admitting using steroids, Pettit also apologized, humbly apologized to the Yankee fans and the Astro fans that he had let down through his actions. Because of his honesty and the fact that it really came as a breath of fresh air amongst the steroids-laden era of baseball, not only would Pettit pitch for another five seasons, winning one more championship with the pinstripes in 2009. But on August 23rd of last year, the Yankees honored Andy Pettit in a post-game ceremony where they not only retired his number 46 jersey, but they gave him a plaque in the famous Monument Park of Yankee Stadium. While each of these two men made the same identical mistake, they cheated. The irony is that the way in which they both handled themselves following, well, it determined totally different outcomes. Clemens was ostracized, never allowed to play the game again. Pettit was restored, pitched for another five years, won another World Series. It was honored by the team he admired. Please understand, though a sinless life may be the intended goal of regeneration. It's never the result. Isn't that the case? While it's true that we all possess the power to never sin again on the account that we've been filled with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit living inside of us gives us a power to never sin again because the flesh tainted by sin remains a part of the human condition. Sinful behaviors even for the believer, are inevitable. Yes, positionally, you are sinless before God, but practically speaking, you know what? I hate to break it to you. Brace yourself. You're going to blow it. You're not going to be sinless. Now, knowing this reality as being an unavoidable part of the Christian experience for every man and woman, Paul As we get to chapter 6, he transitions his discussion of grace from the individual, the applications and implications of the individual, onto now the manner in which grace should be applied to the greater organism of the church community. Verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul's letter to the Galatians, we read, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, 
You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Paul begins this section, brethren. Brethren. Which is important. For not only is the following exhortation relevant for pastors and for church leaders, by using this term brethren, Paul's making it clear that the application and implications for what he's saying is just as applicable to you as it is to us. That it's not just pastors, it's not just church leaders, that it's every Christian should carry forth this particular exhortation. Understand that if we're all seeking to walk in the spirit and not the flesh, the church community, the spirit will supernaturally create, will be one that oozes with grace and resists legalism. Like in a sense here, Paul is describing what the radical nature of a spirit culture looks like. As we've noted in previous studies, how we treat one another is really the foundational litmus test for whether or not we're right with God and abiding in his grace. As Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. Love. God's love and then the reciprocation of that love to those around us. Love itself is central to the gospel message. Without love, there is no gospel. Without the gospel, there is no love. In 1 John 3, verse 11, the apostle of love said, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. And then a couple chapters later, in chapter four, verse seven, he says, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You can't escape love. It is legalism and the various gospel distortions that we've brought up that foster a church culture of division and divisiveness, not love. A church full of selfish ambition and jealousies and envies is not one yielded by the Spirit of God. It's not one yielding fruit of the Spirit. Never forget, if you aren't actively loving others, one is free to question whether or not you fully experience God's great love for you. You can't escape the reality. As Pastor Joe Foch so eloquently stated, grace received is grace bestowed. And it's with this in mind that Paul now carries our love for one another out to a place, a destination where the legalist will never travel, a place the legalist will never go. You see, the surest way to know if you're walking in the spirit or have adopted a legalistic mindset is to consider how you treat someone overtaken by sin. You see, then love the rubber of love meets the difficult road. Paul begins, he says, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, and the way that Paul frames this, there's no doubt, he is deliberately setting up a contrast. 
He's contrasting the Christian who, while walking in the Spirit, is overtaken in a trespass with the person mentioned in the previous chapter who is deliberately practicing works of the flesh. This word trespass, it simply means to fall beside. It it describes a lapse or a deviation. The word describes a false step, a sin, an offense, a misdeed. We would just say a blunder. In the Greek, overtaken simply means to be caught off guard. Vine's expository dictionary provides clarity by translating this verse as, quote, even if a man, through lack of circumspection, should fall into any sin. This is not an intentional act. Now keep in mind, Paul is not here referring to someone living in a determined sin of rebellion. Rebellion against the will and the word of God. This is not someone that is resisting the conviction of God concerning sinful behavior, but rather Paul is describing a person who's been overtaken or simply has fallen into a sin. While still an act of the will, Paul is speaking to someone who blows it, who commits a blunder. And this is an important distinction. Because the way in which a church community is called to handle a brother caught in a deliberate, unrepentant sin is much different than the scenario that Paul is describing here. There are situations where the church, the church of Jesus, is called by God to enact disciplinary measures for the express purpose of breaking and repentance. And note that Paul clearly says any trespass. I find great encouragement in that word, any. Understand, when it comes to the scenario that Paul is painting here, he, he leaves no conditions to the exhortation, which is totally in line with grace. If someone is overtaken in any trespass. So, how are we to handle the one overtaken and a trespass. Paul continues, you who are spiritual. In context, this phrase refers to the person who's walking in the spirit and whom the fruit of the spirit is being produced, the spiritual person. He then exhorts the spiritual person to, quote, restore such a one. In the Greek, this word restore It's interesting. It was actually a medical term meaning to mend or to make one what it ought to be. The mental picture that Paul is kind of painting for us is the setting of a broken bone. Now, now before we continue, there are a few unspoken realities implied by using such imagery. First, the only way a man overtaken in a trespass can be restored is for the the person to first acknowledge a brokenness exists. Without the acknowledgement of a brokenness, there can be no mending. If a man cannot concede a problem, there's no solution. If he refuses to admit a need, there can be no remedy. This is why the scriptures present a different approach be taken to someone in unrepentant sin. Brokenness for mending, for restoration is essential. Once again, the way the baseball community handled Andy Pennant 
was radically different than the way they handled Roger Clemens simply because one man fessed up, humbled himself, and showed contrition, while the other one dug in his heels, denied, 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 and grew all the more stubborn in the process. Additionally, after acknowledging his trespass, it's then necessary, right, that a man overtaken in a trespass humbly allow the involvement of one who is spiritual so that he can then be restored. You know, restoration, by definition, is a two-man endeavor. Like, consider the reality that it is impossible, virtually impossible, for someone to correctly set a broken bone themselves. Survivalists will teach you know, how to set up a brace, but that intends to get you to help so that the bone can be set appropriately and properly. What is often yielded when someone seeks to set a bone themselves is something that's twisted. It's ineffective. You see, for restoration to happen, a bone setter is needed for the break to be set properly. So in addition to admitting that you are broken, and then a humility and willingness to come to someone to have that bone set. These things are required for restoration to take place. When you break a bone, understand the ultimate goal is not to manage pain, but rather to quickly set the bone back in place so that further damage is avoided and the bone can heal correctly. If the bone isn't set in a timely manner, or if it's set incorrectly, not only will the results prove detrimental, but what happens? In many cases, the bone has to be rebroken and then set again. And that is quite a painful process. This is why it's so counterintuitive for a believer who is overcome in a trespass to isolate themselves from Christian community or for that community to ignore obvious problems. You see, when it comes to a break, when it comes to being overtaken in a trespass, the longer you wait to deal with the issues, the more difficult it is to set the bone, to truly restore. Keep in mind, the fundamental goal of restoration is not to punish the individual overtaken. That, that's not the goal of restoration. It's not as though that restoration is kind of like this mortal combat move whereby we finish them off. Like it's in that moment where you're most vulnerable that we can finally kick you in the face and make a real strong point about sin. No, you see, restoration, true restoration, biblical restoration with the environment established you see, it desires to see that person who's been overcoming, overcome in a trespass return back to the place they were before they were overcome. You see, the heart behind restoration is a desire to see that person find healing over comfort, correction over coddling. The point is to set the bone so that the limb heals and returns to its functional purpose which demands we consider what the person overcoming a trespass needs to be restored to. Don't lose sight of the fact the entire context 
for this admonition is this contrast that Paul has established between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Not to mention the much larger reality that the flesh and the Spirit will simply never coexist. Though sin and the life of the believer does not affect a person's position before God. Grace has gloriously declared you righteous apart from your involvement. You are righteous before the throne of God. Sin, as a work of the flesh, does have a consequence. It has a consequence in this regard. It's that sin hinders your ability to grow in godliness. What grace wants to yield because it restricts your ability to walk in the Spirit. Like, it's only logical that the work of restoration, sinner, not on the particular trespass that's been committed, or the specific work of the flesh, but that restoration instead focus on helping the person get back to walking and being led and living in the spirit. Now, don't get me wrong. Sin and these various works of the flesh do carry with them very real and unavoidable consequences. Consequences that must be navigated for restoration to occur. Paul will get to this in a moment. And yet, the ultimate remedy when you're overtaken in a trespass is never more of the flesh which is what legalism proposes, doesn't it? Legalism approaches the one overcome with things like this. This is what you can do to fix the problem. These are the steps you can take. No, the flesh is the problem. You see, the solution to restoration is always more of God's spirit, not more of the flesh. Understand, the original remedy to sin remains the remedy for sin. It's not you, but Jesus' work on the cross. When dealing with one overcome in a trespass, we would be wise to always remember the trespass occurred. Why? Because that person in that moment, in that situation, operated how? In their flesh and not God's spirit. Therefore, restoration should focus on doing what? Helping that person get back to walking in the Spirit. Because the stakes in these situations are so lofty, Paul continues by saying it's important, we quote, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. How tragic it is that so many people who have been overcome in a trespass are no longer found in our ranks today because they were treated by a church in a manner that can only be described as not being gentle. Doesn't Paul's exhortation towards gentleness make total sense? When you see restoration in the context of a bone setter, the setting of a bone, like consider if you break your arm and you need someone to set the bone correctly, what characteristic do you want to find in that person? <laughs> a spirit of gentleness. I don't need someone that's haughty. 
I don't need someone that doesn't have a concern for, for feelings and emotion. Like I need someone who's tender, who's going to do the job, but recognizes this hurts and this is difficult and this is painful. I need someone gentle. So how is it that we possess such a spirit? Two realities to consider. First, don't forget, in context of the previous chapter, that gentleness is not something that we find naturally in our lives. It's not a natural manifestation of the flesh, is it? No, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Defined as, as someone who has strength but under control. Always remember that it's impossible to possess any of the fruit of the Spirit without the active involvement of the Spirit behind the fruit. When charged with the task of restoration, knowing gentleness is required, realize you just need more of God's Spirit, that you yourself need to walk in the Spirit, that in order to have a spirit of gentleness, you need the Spirit behind gentleness. Secondly, Paul continues, look at it, quote, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. This phrase, considering yourself, is interesting. For it literally means to fix one's eyes upon yourself. Like, understandably, that's kind of a very weird direction for Paul to take. Like, we've been tracking through Galatians, and then he gets to this point, and he says, consider yourself. Like, that's weird. Paul has been driving home for five chapters that the key to avoiding self-centeredness is not to look at oneself, but instead to be God-centered and others-focused. And yet, the truth is that the key to properly handling a person caught in sin with gentleness is to always remember this important truth, that you're no fundamentally better off than they. Consider yourself lest you be tempted. We should always be cognitively aware when dealing with a brother or sister in sin that our flesh, your flesh, would immediately lead you to the very same destination if allowed. It's been said that we're all one decision away from completely ruining our lives. Consider yourself is the one overtaken in trespass. Could that not have been you? Absolutely it could have. Our flesh is capable of all types of wickedness. We should never approach this person with a haughtiness that that somehow their plight is above anything we could end up with. We're all capable. Isn't it true that when faced with a person caught in sin, It's so easy for legalism to see such an occasion as an opportunity to puff oneself up with pride, with moral pride. This is why, friend, we must allow grace. We must consider ourselves and allow grace to remind us of the one most powerful overarching reality that the ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. Paul continues in verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This word bear 
is an interesting word, for it literally means to get the shoulder under to carry. That's what the word means. To carry what, you might ask? Paul says, another's burdens, or literally, another person's heaviness, weight, trouble, what this word burden means. The word, it describes something that's hard to lift and even more difficult to carry. Bear. Get your shoulder under someone else's heaviness and so fulfill the law of Christ. The idea Paul is conveying is that in order to restore the one overcome in a trespass so that this person can return to walking in the spirit is that it's essential for the one who is spiritual to intervene with the specific intention of carrying the practical consequences of that person's sin. Think about it like this. Isn't it sacrificial and difficult when faced with someone overcoming a trespass to get involved? Like, doesn't that require a sacrifice and a willingness to assume something that's difficult to specifically involve yourself for the plan of restoration? to get involved in someone else's problems? Seriously. It's a difficult and weighty burden to bear. Anytime you willingly jump into the fray or wade into the muck to help someone dealing with a marital crisis, to carry that, or to help someone work through poor financial decisions or to overcome an addiction or to see two friends who are quabbling overcome differences to find reconciliation. Like very often, the burden born is troublesome. That's a difficult job. It's messy. The burden to get your shoulder under is heavy. Bearing another's burdens is not an easy task. And it will inevitably bring into the person who chooses to engage in the process undue stress and continued conflict. Sometimes you're even caught in the middle. Pastors know that one of the easiest ways to help a man and a woman in marital conflict get through their issues is to speak the truth so that both parties hate you in the process. Now they've got something in common. It's the truth. To willingly get in the middle, to help in this, this godly calling of restoration, it's a difficult thing. And yet consider how this, this decision fulfills the law of Christ. Isn't it true that in order for any of us to be filled with or walk in the Spirit, Jesus had to first take upon himself the weight of our sin? that Jesus had to first bear our burden. Now, knowing how difficult a task bearing another's burdens is, Paul provides here three realities that we should always keep in mind when we embark on such a difficult endeavor. Look at verse three. Paul says, for if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. 
for each one shall bear his own load. Now that's some complicated text there, so let's unpack it systematically first. When engaging this task of restoration by bearing another's burdens, it's essential, it's essential, that you realize Jesus alone is the solution. Like, this is what Paul means when he says, for if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he's nothing, well, he deceives himself. So often, engaging this task of restoration, helping the person caught in a trespass, so often when, when we get into this fray, we end up making a greater mess of things when we dope ourselves into thinking that we can solve the problem, or or worse yet, that we're the solution. Like how arrogant it is, how arrogant a position, when we're powerless to solve our own problems. If you can't solve your own problems, who are you to think you can solve someone else's? This is what Paul means. Like you think you're something, which you're not. It's self-deception. This is why in engaging this task, the key to bearing another's burden is to never forget two things. One, Jesus is the solution, not you. Pointing the person back to the cross is the remedy, not you. Jesus, more of Jesus, less of them, less of you, more of Jesus. Your job is to get their eyes onto Jesus. That's why we have an elder available for prayer for every worship service. It's not so you can come to him and he can give you proper advice on how to deal with your issues. Like Larry's a wise man, he's not that wise. He's a good man, he's not that good. Instead, Larry's job is to hear you and point you to Jesus, the remedy. To be that connecting point. So first, realize you're not the remedy. Two, realize it's not a burden you carry. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you try to carry another's burden on your own, it will crush you under the weight. It's why not only should your job not be the solution, but to point to the solution, but in carrying that load, you allow Jesus to do it. Secondly, when engaging this task of restoration by bearing another's burdens, it's essential you find joy in the work and not the result. This is what Paul means when he says, but let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Like While it's true that this task Bearing another's burdens, the task of restoration. It's heavy. It's tiresome. It is Christ like. Like there is an aspect of being like Jesus engaged in that particular process, which means that as the Spirit of God works in you and works through you in such a way that there should be a joy. Yes, it's tiresome. Yes, it's heavy but there should be a joy. You know, it's so easy for us to allow the frustrations and the problems, even the failures and the task of restoration to weigh us down and to rob us of our joy. 
anybody that's ever engaged in this particular task, if you're looking for the, the resolving of that situation to be the origin of your joy, you're going to find yourself more depressed than exalted because you're dealing with sinful people who don't always want the solution. You're to engage in the process. Engage because it's, it's a heavenly calling. And yet, find joy in the work, the task itself, and not always the result because you have no control over that. You see, our joy should be found in the fact that through this whole process, we were God's tool, fulfilling God's calling, regardless of the outcome. And there's an aspect to that that we align our hearts with God. For in Hebrews 12, verse 3, we're told, For consider Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your own souls. Jesus has gone to efforts for restoration that you and I can't imagine. And the brutal reality is that those efforts are rejected and despised every day. It's, it's the job. It's being his hands and his feet. It's finding joy and being used, not the result. Finally, when engaging this task of restoration by bearing another's burdens, it's essential you remember the task. It's your spiritual duty. Like Paul closes this section by saying, for each one shall bear his load. While the word bear is the same one we found in verse one, the idea of his load is much different than another's burden. The word load actually referred to the backpack worn by a Roman soldier. Like it was something the soldier was commissioned to specifically carry himself. It wasn't something he passed off to another. It was his responsibility. Now keep this in mind, this reality in mind, that when you're faced with someone overcome in a trespass, if you do not seek to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, who will? But Zach, I can't. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I can't do it, man. Well, you're right, you can't. That's step one. Good job. You totally can't. And yet, the Holy Spirit can. And if he's indwelt you, you have the power in yourself to be able to do this. Yes, you can. Well, rest of, isn't that the job of the pastor? That's what we're paying you for, buddy. Well, it can be. Trust me, I, I have my fair share of dealing with restoration cases. But don't forget the opening word, brethren. You see, there is no escaping the fact that while it is the job of the pastor and that of church leadership, it is also yours as well. Sadly, many refuse this particular task because if they were honest, they just don't want to exert the time or the energy required. Shame on you. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul made it clear that this spirit culture, 
this environment fostered by God's amazing grace is only possible when everyone involved esteems others better than himself. Refusing to get involved is selfishness. It's not Christ-likeness. You know, I can't wrap up this section of Scripture without first making it clear. To anyone here this morning overcome in a trespass, that it's okay. Like God's not up in heaven shocked. It's not as though you let him down. God still loves you. His love hasn't changed. Shocker. You blew it. Duh. It's going to happen. Like seriously, you failed. I don't know what you did, but you failed. All of you failed sometime this week. Put money on it. But while you might have failed, that doesn't mean you're a failure. Like Jesus died for all sin. And his grace remains just as sufficient in this moment as it was when you first experienced it. Like understand, the worst thing that you can do when you're overcome is to fail to come and confess to one who is spiritual. Restoration. Restoration demands that you allow someone to help set a bone, to set that bone correctly, as well as to allow someone to help bear your burdens. And how does this happen? A bone setter's main job is to always remind the person of God's amazing grace. A bone setter focuses on getting that person's eyes back on Jesus. Because the problem with the trespass is that for that moment, they took their eyes off of him. And your pride, you can try to carry it on your own. You can try to fix it all. You can even deny, 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 deny. But never forget, setting a bone improperly will only cause a gimp to develop in your walk. When I played Little League Baseball, there was an assistant coach in the league who always wore these really high socks. In the dead of summer, man, he's wearing these high socks, shorts, high socks, really goofy look. Like even in the 90s, not a cool look. And one day, he was asked Why? And he pulled down one of his socks, and seriously, his leg went like this and like that. That when he was a kid, he broke his leg and never got it set properly. And it grew back goofy. And he always had a limp. And the amount of pain that would be required to get it all fixed was just more than he was willing to do. So he lived with it. I'm tired of seeing so many believers with a gimp in their walk. We have too many people that are not running the race with endurance because in pride, they've refused to have a bone set. We know it'll happen. It's inevitable for us all. Why do we resist help in our time of need? 
Like if you need this morning complete healing, it's okay. No one's going to judge you, condemn you, throw a weight on you. No one's here to finish you off, to stomp you in the face, to make a point. Like the truth, as James said, he said, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Finally, I think it's tragic that the church today takes one of two approaches that both fail to provide restoration. If we're honest, a lot of people are afraid to confess because of the way the church handles confession. On one end of the spectrum, you have churches who view restoration as a no-consequence free pass, which masks itself as being the most loving and Christ-like. It's kind of the the ostrich uh, approach to sin. Stick your head in the sand and just hope for whatever happens. Regrettably, to do this, these churches employ the anti-gospel distortion of grace so I can do anything to justify focusing on God's love for the person and not God's desire to transform behaviors. And yet, on the polar opposite end of the spectrum exists the legalistic church who views restoration as a harsh road that requires penance and endured consequence. Ironically, these churches employ the anti-gospel distortions of grace and do these things as well as grace, but don't do these things in order for a person to be able to redemonstrate the fact that they've gotten it so that they can show their worthiness again. Instead of ignoring brokenness or cannibalizing the broken, it is our prayer that Calvary 316 be simply known as a grace place. Like may we be a community, this little church, that represents a spirit culture. May we always demonstrate the grace and the love of God, the love that God has shown to us. May we show that same love and grace to each other, especially in the moments that we fail to live up to a life consistent with our heavenly calling. May we actively seek spiritual restoration through a spirit of gentleness and demonstrate to each other a willingness to bear one another's burdens. For there is an inescapable truth to these things. First, not only will you need restoration yourself, as it's inevitable that you'll be overcome with a trespass, but you know, you never forget the person who restores you in such a way. Isn't that the truth? That when someone handles you in your time of need with gentleness and with love and with grace, that you're forever wed to that person. That there is a a, a knitting together of souls. When I was 11 years old, for the second time, I broke my arm playing football in the church playground. Might be some subconscious reason we don't have a playground because I just had bad memories of church playgrounds, broke my arm. Just so happens that we were about two and a half blocks away from the church in a bank parking lot. 
going back for a punt, didn't see the curb, hit the curb, fell, put my arm down, and the bones stuck out. It was a nasty break. I'm laying there looking at my arm and my hand is this direction, and I'm thinking, that's not normal. (laughs) And immediately, a gentleman in the church who was playing football with us, his name was Michael Gass, he ran over and he grabbed my arm, grabbed the break. And I was in shock. I just looked at him and he looked at me. He helped me up. One of the ushers ran ahead to pull my mom out of the service. We had to go to the ER. And Michael proceeded to walk me back, lovingly, holding my break, blood in his hands. We got back to the church. My mom had come out. Remember, this is my second time doing this in the span of about a year, so we got a routine down. Open up the van door. I sit in. And it's at that time that Michael's going to hand me my arm. And I look at him with just saucers. I said, uh-uh. He goes, I got to give your arm back. Uh-uh. It hurts too much. And so he said, scoot over. So I scooted over. He got in the van with me. And he held my arm for the next like three hours till we finally got back to the right doctor and they had given me some pain medication and where the nurses are like, you're going to have to let him let go. I was 11 years old. Today, I stay in touch with Michael Gass. You don't forget someone. And that's a physical break. Spiritual ones, you don't forget a church that doesn't judge, that doesn't hate, that loves. Now, now, now realize there's some things required on, on your end. Admitting, coming. We can't help someone who doesn't want help. We won't admit it. But in the moment where there's humility, and the moment where, like Andy Pettit, you call the press conference, I'm caught, I'm guilty, and I need help. A spirit culture is a culture, not just where the pastor seeks to restore, but where we all seek to restore each other. No one person can carry it. The elders can't carry it all. A spirit culture is where we each esteem each other over ourselves and make the decision to be part of this godly process, even when it can be nasty and it can be tiresome and it can be burdensome, but may we find our joy in the fact that it's still a spiritual tax nonetheless.